Thank you for your singing this morning. If you could just remain standing with me for a little bit as we read through the uh, sermon passage from John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and uh, be reading only till one, from one, verses 1 through 18. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being gathered together as your people. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for uh, fellowship uh, through uh, different churches. We thank you for um, the blessing of gathering us all together, providing this space for us that we may have a joint service here this morning. Lord, as your word is now opened, we pray that you would use it to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, you have said it will not come back to you void, uh, but will accomplish what you intend. And so, Lord, we pray that as your word is preached, that you would bless the preaching of this word, uh, that it would be unto the edification of your people and unto the conversion of sinners. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a great privilege to be with you all on this Lord's Day. Uh, My name is Riley Taves. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Covenant Church. And I'd like to extend a special welcome to all of you joining us from Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Uh, For any visitors we have, this is uh, not our normal congregation size, but... Uh, We are uh, happy to be able to host all of you here today. So we are picking up this morning uh, where we left off in John's Gospel. Our usual practice is to simply work through books of the Bible. And so we'll be picking picking up where we left off in John. And we are in chapter 7. So if you still have your Bibles open, uh, you can look with me to verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea, because he knew the Jews were seeking to kill him. So first off, we start with a transition from the last story. Jesus had fed the 5,000. He had multiplied the bread and the fish. And this then led into the bread of life dialogue, 
which we have spent the last few chapter, uh, weeks unpacking in chapter 6. And here now John transitions after this, so sometime after what had taken place, Jesus then went about in Galilee. That is, he ministered in Galilee. John doesn't give us the time frame here, uh, but it is, this is likely a, a year-long time that he spends in Galilee, uh, traveling from town to town, teaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, and uh, it is this period in Galilee where the other gospel accounts spend most of their time uh, following Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And we're given the reason here in John, uh, the reason that Jesus stayed out in these rural areas of Galilee is because the Jews were seeking him in Judea. Uh, They were seeking to kill him. And that references us back to John chapter 5, verse 18. If you remember, in the wake of the Sabbath controversy and the staggering claims made by Christ about his own authority and his relation to the Father, uh, the Jews after that were seeking to kill him. And Jesus will reference back to this event uh, later in this passage, which we'll get to next week. Verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering, was one of three pilgrimage feasts in the year. Following the fruit harvest, uh, the ingathering of the produce from the wine press and from the olive press, uh, this would have been a celebration at the end of the agricultural year where all Jewish males were required to come to Jerusalem for seven days, where they were to then bring sacrifices, daily offerings to the Lord. Now the reason that is called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is because they were also required to dwell in tents, in booths, tabernacles, for this time, uh, for this week, in order to commemorate the time that Israel had sojourned, uh, as they sojourned in tents, having been delivered from Egypt. Now, the imagery of this particular feast would be quite striking. Uh, It is a festival where they are thanking God for the fruit of the promised land, right, enjoying this, bringing these bountiful offerings to God while also living in these booths, right, remembering their time as sojourners, right, so giving the offerings from the bounty of the harvest while also spending this week in these booths would place the blessings side by side with the reminder of the redemptive work of God. It was a reminder that what they had now was only because of the work of God in having delivered them from slavery. So that's the setting here, and it'll be relevant as we get further in the passage. Uh, But here now, Jesus' brothers urge him to go to Jerusalem uh, during this feast. Uh, John tells us in verse 5 that Jesus' own brothers did not believe him. They did not believe he was the Messiah. They did not accept his claims that he was who he claimed to be. And I think this fact uh, shows us how to understand their words here. They are goading him. They are provoking him. You think you're somebody special? You want to be a public figure, don't you? 
Well, then don't stay here in the boonies. Go to Jerusalem. Go and show everyone what you can do. Your disciples might see the works you are doing. If you're going to work these miracles, go uh, do it where more people will see them. They're, They're poking him. Go show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. Now before we move on, let's just sit on that one for a second. One of the applications that scripture itself draws from the doctrine of the full humanity of Christ is that it demonstrates to us that our mediator and savior is one who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he himself has suffered as we suffer. He has experienced what we experience. He says in Hebrews, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, tested, as we are, yet without sin. So what's the point? Christ's humanity, Christ's time on earth, enables him to truly sympathize. Now, I remember when I first came across this point, it seemed rather unnecessary to me. Right? If you believe what the Bible teaches about the omniscience of God, and our youth remember that word, omniscience, right? that God is all-knowing, then of course you would acknowledge that God knows what it is to suffer, as we do. He knows everything. But it has come to be a beautiful example for me of God's tender compassion for his children. While he didn't have to make this point and could simply point, point it to his omniscience as evidence that he can indeed sympathize, that he does know what we're going through, in his kindness and condescension to our weakness, God makes this point in the text to prove to us that we have a high priest who can sympathize. To prove to us that he knows. Christ has suffered as we suffer. And so your mediator, your priest at the right hand of God is one who can truly sympathize. One who has suffered as a man. And we are meant to take comfort from this. So when you go through something difficult in your life, you go through something hard, look for parallels in the life of Christ. Have you ever had to endure unjust treatment? Have you been treated unfairly? Your high priest and mediator was condemned, though he was an innocent man. Do you ever feel like everyone in your life is against you? Remember, Christ had the Jews, the Romans, the leadership, both civil and religious, plot against him. He had the entire city of Jerusalem calling for his blood, and all of his disciples fled and abandoned him. Do you have conflict, perhaps conflict in your own family? The pain of having your closest relatives against you. Notice here, not even his brothers believed in him. 
Let us take comfort, dear congregation. Bring your cares and concerns to Christ, for you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in your weakness. Rather, you have a merciful and faithful high priest. Our omniscient God knows our thoughts, he knows our cares, concerns, pains, and trials, and just in case that weren't enough, God the Son became man and has suffered as we suffer. He has suffered firsthand. He knows and he cares. So brothers and sisters, bring your burdens to him. Now just before we move on here, uh, there's another point. Um, We should just mention that it was at this point that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, uh, but that would not always be the case. Uh, The book of James most scholars would understand that to have been written by one of Jesus' own brothers. It's fascinating if you look at how James introduces his, his letter. He refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, doulos, slave of Jesus Christ. And that's actually one of the arguments that is used to show the validity historically of the resurrection, right? What happened between John 7 and the book of James? To go from Jesus' own brothers not believing in him to having one of those brothers referring to himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, a few things happened. Jesus rose from the dead and the spirit fell upon the church. Um, Take encouragement from this. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. So his brothers were encouraging him to go up to this feast to be a public figure, right? to go in publicly, to be received publicly. Jesus explains that his time to go to Jerusalem in that way has not yet come. That time will come, and it will come fairly soon. Uh, Jesus would later go up to Jerusalem in that way, going in publicly for the Passover feast. You may know, on that occasion, he came in riding a donkey, Uh, being received by the waving of palm branches and coats being thrown on the ground to soften his ride. And cries of Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Entering Jerusalem in that way at that time, as we may know, uh, was the beginning of Passion Week. Uh, That was what would lead to his crucifixion. And so Jesus explains to his brothers Now is not that time. He will not go in that way at this time. But rather, he is following his father's timetable and not theirs. As he says, my time has not come, but your time is always here. In other words, they could go at any time. There was no special divinely appointed time for his brothers to go to Jerusalem. Now, that is not to say that God's providence was suspended in their case but rather that their presence in Jerusalem uh, would be ultimately insignificant in the grand purposes of God, whereas Jesus has a specific schedule that he has to follow. The world cannot hate you, 
The implication being, at this point, since his brothers are still unbelievers, Christ's brothers belong to the world. And as Jesus will say in chapter 15, those who belong to the world, the world loves as its own. In contrast, Jesus says, the world hates me. Why? It hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So the world, in Greek that is the cosmos, the ordered system of opposition to God, the world. The world hates having its works exposed. Remember that Jesus is the light that shone in the darkness. John 3, 19, Jesus said, This is the judgment. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. The world always hates to have its evil exposed, to be convicted of its sin. Men who love darkness naturally hate the light. They hate the reminder of these truths which they know, but have been actively suppressing. Those who love sin and and want to be able to live in sin and enjoy sin, without having their consciences pricked, these people will always find the presence of the light uncomfortable. In fact, they will hate the light. Be prepared, Christian. For your master has told you to expect the same kind of treatment. John 15 verse 18 says, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. Now, if the world hated Christ to the point that it murdered him, we should not be surprised when that same world hates those who are striving to be conformed into Christ's image. Don't take it personally. As one artist put it, it's not that they don't like us, it's just that they don't like God in us. It should come as no surprise that those who love darkness hate the ambassadors of the light, the representatives of the light. And this, in fact, is a fundamental element of a biblical worldview. We must understand the antithesis. As one pastor put it, when our first parents sinned in the garden, one of the central consequences, which was part of God's redemptive promise and plan, was that he placed a permanent antithesis between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is why the history of the world is filled with conflict. This is the central conflict. 
It is the driver of everything that happens. It is the reason for the long war. This is why Jesus had to die, and it is why the death of Jesus crushed the serpent's head while bruising his heel, close quote. Brothers and sisters, we find ourselves in the midst of a cosmic conflict. The world, the cosmos, the ordered system of opposition to God, that is the seed of the woman. And it is constantly battling against this, uh, pardon me, that is the seed of the serpent. Get this backwards. Uh, And it is constantly battling against the seed of the woman, the righteous seed. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. But since you are in Christ, since you shine his light as a Christian, as an ambassador of Christ, since you represent him, you must be prepared to be hated as Christ was hated. Now, as the West becomes increasingly secularized, I believe we must be prepared to face more and more of this opposition and hatred. The myth that neutrality was ever possible is becoming less and less plausible. There is no neutral space in this world. There is no neutral space in this antithesis. Rather, the kingdom of darkness would seek to swallow up all things, and all things are counterclaimed by Christ. Christians, therefore, cannot and must not make peace with the kingdom of darkness. 1 John 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is an antithesis. There are two opposing sides. And as Christ has taught us, you cannot serve two masters. Brothers and sisters, do not make peace with the world. But make peace with the fact that as faithful disciples of Christ, you will receive the hatred of the world. Jesus said the world hates him because he testifies about it, that its works are evil. As his ambassadors, as his representatives, we have the calling to do the same. We too must testify to the world that its works are evil. Now, we should note that this is not primarily a message of condemnation, but that this is the message of salvation. We testify to the world that their works are evil so that men and women would see their great need for a Savior. We then proclaim Christ as that Savior. He is the Savior who meets that great need need. He is the Savior who took our punishment upon himself. The punishment due to our evil deeds was borne by Christ. He offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who will turn to him in repentance and faith. And so it is through this gospel that God snatches men and women out of the world out of the kingdom of darkness, and transfers them into his kingdom. So as we go forth and proclaim the gospel, including the ever unpopular message that the works of the world are evil, 
let us see clearly that we are not doing so out of hatred or bigotry. It is not because we see ourselves as being in any way superior to anyone else in and of ourselves. The gospel of grace leaves no room at all for boasting. Rather, we proclaim this message, unpopular though it is, because it is the only means of salvation. We proclaim it because we love God and neighbor. Attempting to make peace with the world or seeking to avoid the hatred of the world would mean shutting our mouths about the good news of the gospel. And that is something we must not do. We must love God and neighbor more than that. We must fear the Lord and not man. We must be willing to be reproached for the sake of Christ. Let's continue on with verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. While it was not his time to enter Jerusalem in the way his brothers encouraged, later on, after they had gone, Jesus then too went up to the feast. Now just note here, Jesus did not lie to his brothers. Again, as Carson notes, Jesus' response to his brothers is not that he was planning to stay in Galilee forever, uh, but that because his life is regulated by his heavenly Father's appointments, he is not going to the feast when they said he should. Close quote. So, Jesus went up privately, not publicly. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So notice Jesus' reputation had spread, and we get a glimpse here of what things were like in Jerusalem. Verse 11 says that the Jews were looking for him. Remember verse 1, Jesus had known that uh, he had been avoiding Judea, staying in Galilee, because he knew the Jews were looking for him, because he knew they were seeking to kill him. And so here we see the Jews were indeed looking for him, asking around for him, hoping perhaps that the feast would draw him out so that he would fall into their hands. Yet among the crowds of people come to Jerusalem for the feast, we see that opinions are divided. Some are saying he is a good man. Others that he is leading people astray. And John gives us the picture that these conversations are all happening in hushed tones. Jesus now is the talk of the town, a figure mired in controversy. Everyone is talking about him, but they're speaking of him, uh, afraid, uh, glancing around as they share their opinions, afraid that the wrong person might overhear what they say. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has such learning? When he has never studied, the crowds were amazed at him, wondering, how is this possible when he has never studied? And what they likely mean, that he's never been to one of our formal educational centers of learning. Or he has never followed around and learned from one of our famous rabbis. Right? How is it that he knows so much of the word that he has such knowledge and wisdom, 
without a university degree, right? He never went to seminary. How does he know so much? Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Adia Carson points out that the tendency of rabbis at this time was to substantiate every pronouncement by appealing to precedent, right, to earlier rabbinic judgments. Not to do so might indicate a certain arrogance and independence of spirit in danger of drifting from the weight of tradition. To put that in simple terms, he's saying that usually rabbis, if they were going to say something, they would then quote other rabbis who had said the same thing before. Right? So they're always saying something on the authority of someone else. <clears throat> and so now we come to Jesus, a rabbi who didn't study with the other rabbis. He wasn't discipled by one of the respected teachers of the day. And in his teaching, he doesn't seem to care all that much about the opinions of previous rabbis. So the question comes, is he then teaching on his own authority? Jesus answers, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. You want to know how Jesus can speak as he does? You want to know the authority with which he speaks? He's not a rogue teacher making things up on his own, but rather he says, my teaching is from God. Let us remember again that Jesus is no mere man. He is fully human, but he is also God the Son, the Logos, the eternal word of God who has eternally existed. Remember John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? He became a man. So how is it that Jesus had such learning, that he had such knowledge, such mastery of the scriptures? They are his scriptures. They are his word. God the Son became a man. He came from the Father and does what the Father does, John 5, 19. And he says what the Father tells him to say, John 12, 49. He knows the word because it is his word. Jesus then gives a test. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Again, here's this teacher doing things differently from the other rabbis of the day. If you're wondering about the source of Jesus' authority, he says, here's how you can know. If your will is to do the will of God, you will know whether his teaching is from God. If you were an earnest and honest follower of God, someone willing to do, not merely to hear, but to do the will of God, then you will know whether or not Christ's teaching is from God. The implication then, then you will know that his teaching is from God. Notice then that this first requires a faith commitment. 
You must first be on God's side, committed to him, willing to receive and to do his will. D.A. Carson again. Finite and fallen human beings cannot set themselves up on some sure ground outside the truth and thus gain the vantage point from which they may assess it. Divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. From that perspective, the person who chooses to do God's will discovers that Jesus' teaching articulates it, that Jesus does not speak on his own, but as the word of God, close quote. Jesus goes on, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. In John 5, Jesus has already criticized those who come in their own names, likely referring to some of the other, uh, to some of the false messiahs who had come before him. Jesus criticized the crowds for seeking and receiving glory from one another and not seeking the glory of God. And so here also, Christ now contrasts those who would seek their own glory, uh, speaking on their own authority. He contrasts those with those who speak on the authority and seek the glory of the one who sent them. Those speaking on their own authority, seeking glory for themselves, are concerned with their reputations, right? Seeking glory. They're trying to create a following. Jesus says he is not like that. Jesus is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, and as a result, he can be trusted. Makes sense. If someone's main goal is to simply build up a following around themselves, such a person will very likely tell others whatever their itching ears want to hear. In contrast, someone seeking the glory of God, a faithful servant, not seeking to exalt themselves, but rather to see God exalted. That is a man you can trust, one in whom there is no falsehood. And that is, of course, equally true today. There is a strong temptation for pastors to smooth off the rough parts of Scripture. Right? Speak to us smooth words, things that will go down easy. And I'm sure you've seen it. If you want to build a large following, this is the way to do it. Just give the people what they want. Tickle their ears. Don't challenge them too much. Stay away from the hard sayings of Scripture, the difficult instructions, or the unpopular doctrines. Give the people what they want, and you can make a name for yourself. You can become very successful by worldly standards. But of course, such a person is not to be trusted because someone concerned with their own glory, making a name for themselves, will just tell you whatever they think you want to hear. They will speak on their own authority. That is not a person you can trust. So instead, if you want truth, if you want real help, find someone who fears God. A God-fearer, someone seeking God's glory and not their own, is someone you can trust. In them, there is no falsehood. They have no other agenda. They are not after worldly success or fame. Their goal is simply to hear 
Well done, good and faithful servant. They will not lie to you, for lying does not glorify God, and they fear God more than man. They will not simply tell you what you want to hear, since they're not worried about building a following for themselves. Instead, they are duty-bound to faithfully proclaim what God wants them to proclaim. Let us be this way, such that our concern would not be, how can I best position myself for success, but rather to ask the question, what does God want? What pleases God? How can I glorify God? This is one of the many things that set Jesus apart from the other rabbis, as well as from the messianic pretenders who came before him. Jesus came to do the will of God. Jesus came to teach the will of God. Jesus came to seek the glory of the one who sent him, the glory of his Father. Jesus was not interested in worldly fame or wealth. He did not amass followers to give him a comfortable life. He was not seeking his own glory, but in all he did, he was seeking the glory of the one who sent him. He came to fulfill the mission that his father had given him. And that mission involved enduring the hatred of the world. The antithesis, that cosmic conflict we mentioned earlier, that is why Christ came. God's good creation has fallen. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Mankind is fallen. We are sinful. By nature, we are all of the world. By nature, we all love the darkness and hate the light. Christ came to redeem his fallen creation. Christ came to make good on that promise of God spoken all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Again, even as God was pronouncing the curse, he promised a redeemer. A deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent but would be wounded in the process. Jesus Christ is that deliverer. He came and lived a life unto the glory of God in every way. Jesus fully kept all that God requires of man. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law. And Christ died on the cross, taking the penalty due to his people for sin. Galatians 3.17 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He took that curse, that penalty upon himself. As a result, there is now no curse left for those who are in him. As we read earlier, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for us because Jesus Christ was condemned in our place. There is no punishment of death for
for us because Jesus Christ died in our place. There is no wrath of God awaiting us because Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. There is instead glory of glories, the blessing of God saying to each of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because we have lived righteously enough to earn such glorious rewards, but because Jesus Christ fulfilled God's law. And through our union with him, his perfect righteousness is credited, is counted to us. Christ's perfectly God-glorifying life is counted as yours. You are received by God as if you had lived that life. For you are received by God through his Son, who fulfilled it, who died and rose again, who has fully purchased the pardon and the covenant blessings of all who would ever believe in him. This was his mission. This was how Christ came to glorify his Father. And so now to all of us who are in Christ, our lives take on that same goal. Bring glory to God. Titus 2.14 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So to bring this home, you, Christian, who do you live for? Do you seek your own glory or the glory of him who sent you, <clears throat> the glory of him who made you? Are you willing to endure the hatred of the world for the sake of Christ? Do you count the reproach of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of the world? Hebrews eleven twenty six. Or perhaps do you shrink back and hide your light under a basket? Is your will to do God's will? Is this your desire, your goal? Do you fear God? Do you esteem the frowns and smiles of God to be more weighty than the frowns and smiles of men? We must imitate our Savior. We too must be committed to seeking the glory of God, the glory of him who made us, who sent us. This is the very purpose for which we were made. Many of you will know this one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. True life, true glory is to be found in being restored to the purpose for which we were made, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To trade in the approval of the world for the approval of our maker, that will not be a trade that anyone ever regrets. I can tell you this, there is nobody in heaven right now who is enjoying full and perfect communion with God, shining like the sun at noonday, who is wishing that they had cared more about what the world thought of them. When we see Christ face to face, what I think will go through our minds 
is the realization that the greatest moments we had on earth, the most sincere worship, the most selfless acts of service, absolutely pale in comparison to what we now see Christ is worth. Brothers and sisters, do not live for your own glory, but seek the glory of God. Glorify God with every part of your being. Offer your whole selves, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual worship, Romans 12.1. Bring every area of your life into conformity with God's word. Be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer. Be one of those of whom Christ speaks, those whose will is to do the will of God. Do not seek your own glory. Do not care about the approval of the world. But be like your Savior. Be prepared to be hated for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Let this motto resound over your life. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Amen.